Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. We will continue our study of uh, this minor prophet. And in fact, um, contrary to what I said last week, I, it's going to take an additional week to get through Habakkuk. Um, there's just so much in this psalm, this last chapter of Habakkuk, that um, I didn't want to rush through it. And so this way, we can deal with the final section um, of Habakkuk, and we can summarize the book and, God willing, if we have time, read through it. Read through it. So I'll remind you of the movement in Habakkuk. Habakkuk deals with some of the most foundational, deep questions we as people have. Probably the most common question I get from unbelievers when talking about the gospel, talking about the Bible, is what about evil? In the world, and why doesn't God do something about it? And Habakkuk, as, as a prophet of the living God, is wrestling with first the, the evil in Israel. Um, the, the book begins, it's just a dialogue. Habakkuk brings a question, a complaint to the Lord, the Lord answers. Habakkuk processes that, has a second complaint question, the Lord answers. Psalm, that's the book. Question, answer, question, answer, and sort of synthesis, resolution. And this psalm, given to Israel's um, psalm book, the Psalms, makes it clear that Habakkuk's question and answer and question and answer and synthesis is meant for all of us. God intends for us to be edified from this psalm, that we might sing something like this, might be on our lips. And the answer that Habakkuk gets from the Lord isn't exactly what he was looking for. He complains about Israel's wickedness, injustice, and the response is not reform, not some minor chastening discipline to correct, but rather the deportation from the land, that a greater and more wicked nation was being raised up by the Lord, the Chaldeans, Babylon, and the Lord was going to allow them to gather up Israel and other nations as fishermen gather up fish in nets. And Habakkuk is troubled by this along two lines. In the second response, how is it, the Lord, that you can work with a more wicked people to judge a more righteous people? Yes, Israel is bad, but Babylon is worse. How does that work? How does a holy God ordain, determine, raise up, bring down nations without... Compromising his holiness. How can he let the wicked man judge the man more righteous than he? And, and is this to go on forever? Is this the end of Israel? Is, is Babylon just going to be the world power forever? World without end. Amen. And God's response is that he will discipline Babylon. They don't know they're acting as the Lord's instrument. They're not doing what they're doing for his glory. They're, they're boasting in their own might. Their God is their might. They're guilty. The Lord is well aware of their guilt. And they will be judged so severely that all the nations that they acted upon, prayed upon, gathered up, will rise up with a taunting song of their complete downfall and reversal. We saw that. And then chapter 3 begins with Habakkuk's synthesis. In other words, what Habakkuk is told is eventually justice will be metered out perfectly. Eventually, the evildoer will be punished. Eventually, all will be made right. And so in this psalm, it's sort of a sandwich 
The outside is faith and faithfulness. If I remind you, look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. Chapter 3, in your work, O Lord, do I fear. And then we get his three petitions. In the midst of the years, revive it or give life. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. And now I remind you that I suggested that phrase, in the midst of years. In the time between, where the final justice has not yet come, where God's promises still are unfulfilled and we wait expectantly. In that time, in the years between, how do we live? We need the Lord to give us life and sustain us. It's hard. We need God to give us understanding that our minds might comprehend and accept what he has said. And in wrath, remember mercy. And then, Isaiah, Habakkuk begins to describe the coming judgment of the Lord using, and here's your blank, if you look at the sheet, it's filled in, the praise from the superscription to prayer to praise. Something interesting is going on. Habakkuk is remembering the Lord's past judgment and salvation in anticipation of his future work. And we saw that the, the movement of God as he moves, comes into the conflict, is, is paralleling exactly the movement of Israel from Egypt to Sinai, up through the south of Israel into the promised land. What Habakkuk is doing is, is describing God's coming judgment and salvation in word pictures and language of his past judgment. And if you'll turn back to um, chapter 1, verse 1, as I've been th- chewing on this more and more, I, I think that Habakkuk may be doing more than simply making some good guesses, but rather the Lord may well have shown him some picture of this coming judgment. It lines up too well with what we see in the book of Revelation. And that the title of the book, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So perhaps even in this poetic hymn, Habakkuk isn't simply um, taking Old Testament pictures, but actually describing some of what he's seeing, some of the Lord has given him to encourage him. And this section breaks, the middle section here breaks into subsections. So if, if, if you think of my sandwich of faithfulness, the bread on the outside, the faithfulness is verse 2, where he says, I hear and I fear and here's my petition. The other slice of bread, the other piece of faithfulness that caps this is 15 through the end. Even though many of your, 16 through the end, I'm sorry, even though many of your Bibles will break 17 is the new section. Um, the break is at 16. Where again, his commitment to wait faithfully, to trust in God, to hope in God. And then in between, in verses 3 to 15, we have this vision of the Lord coming. And that gets broken into two sections. Um, the contrast being in, in verses 3 to 7, what we looked at last week, God is spoken of in the third person. Habakkuk is describing what he does. And Habakkuk has also included a literary device to make us know it's a unit. What's called ellipsis or bookends. You'll notice that verse 3 starts with these locations. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And look how 7 ends. we got more locations. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtain of the land of Midian did tremble. So that subsection is bracketed by geographic locations. And the next section, 8 through 15, is bracketed by water. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the seas? And then look at 15. You trampled the seas with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So this is why I'm taking this as a unit. So what I'd like to do is read verses um, 8 through 15, have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin 
considering this vision of the Lord God preparing for war. Let's, let's read verses 8 through 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Salah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the insight to to understand the grandeur of this vision, that we might take comfort from it as Habakkuk takes comfort from it, that we might give all judgment to you, confident that you will judge rightly and righteously, that we would be satisfied to wait on your timing. We might look to you, our Savior and our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So again, what is, what is going on here in this psalm is Habakkuk is describing what God will do to Babylon, what he will do in disciplining this nation, using language and word pictures from his past salvation. And we consider the significance of the point that God's past work and deliverance is meant to encourage us to believe in his future promises of deliverance. In other words, as we're considering and we're trusting on what God says he will do for us, we're to look back and see what he has done for us. And I think John Piper calls that faith in future grace, that God's faithfulness in the past, his mighty works of salvation, his mighty works of deliverance, he intends, one of, one of the reasons he wants us to praise him for that, one of the reasons he wants us to speak of that isn't just that he get glory, but that we get help and hope. And again and again, we've seen Israel would go back to considering the exodus, that the monumental deliverance that God wrought for them. And then the logic is, if you remember how mighty the Lord acted for his people, how faithful he was, ought we not to trust him in the years in between, in the time that we're waiting for his coming promise? Ought we not to trust him and take heart? That's, that's the rationale. That's the rationale. So here in the second middle section, describing the Lord coming, the shift now is speaking to God. And we get a lot of second person language. So if verses 3 to 7 is the glory of the Lord and his coming, I'm going to suggest that verses 8 to 15 is the purpose of the Lord and his coming. Why is he coming? Why will he come again? Um, One other thing to mention while we consider that is even as he's describing the Lord's future activity with past activity, that future activity um, is, is, has a near fulfillment and referent. 
We know that. We know that this is about the destruction of Babylon. We know that because if you look at verse 16, I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk understands this is the promise of judgment for the people who will invade us. And yet Babylon shows up again at the end in the book of Revelation. And some of the description here is so great and so grandiose, I think it ultimately finds its fulfillment in that. So even here we've got this sort of near things. And yet, in the, in the over-the-top language, actually literally describing things to come, yet future for us. So let's consider the purpose of the Lord in his coming. Verses 8 through 9b. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on the chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. What we get here in your blank is some rhetorical questions. God's purpose is first seen as his effect is visited upon the waters. And Habakkuk asks these rhetorical questions. They're rhetorical. I've actually read some commentators that suggested Habakkuk is confused. Lord, why are you doing this? I think it's clearly a rhetorical device. And here's, here's the logic. We've moved from Habakkuk being concerned that perhaps God isn't sufficiently taking into account Babylon's wickedness. Perhaps the Lord is dealing with them too lightly. And we've now shifted so far that God's wrath and judgment, what God will do, is so great that the side effects on creation and the, the waters and the rivers and the mountains is, is causing Habakkuk to say, whoa, whoa, Lord, surely you don't have anything against the waters. It, it's so moved from, Lord, you're of purer eyes than to look on these people. How can you do this? How can you let the wicked man judge the man more righteous than he? To now actually asking, whoa, whoa, Lord, what did the waters do? God's judgment and his wrath depicted here is so great. That we're to understand that in, in pursuing it, he is willing to do damage to the very world he created and said was very good. Now, that's the idea. Rather than underestimating God's wrath and judgment, the reality is far greater than anything Habakkuk could see or understand. And, and that's one of the things we've got to grapple with in this passage is that I, I know today it's not very popular to talk about the wrath of God. We don't, we don't like talking about it. We like emphasizing the love of God and the patience of God. And amen, let's, let's emphasize those things. But the Bible assumes that this world is not our home. The Bible assumes that those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. In other words, the Bible assumes that we are longing for a future country, for a future judgment. And then the Bible will again and again, and I'll show you in the New Testament, you can't get around this by saying this is an Old Testament issue puts out the promise of God's deliverance and judgment as a basis for hope. The Bible is, in other words, expecting us to have enough uncomfortability in this world, to be grieved and vexed by evil and wickedness around us enough that the promise that, no, no, take heart, God will judge, and it will be sufficient. It will be enough. In fact, it'll be more than enough. I think that's the idea here. Lord, Lord, was your anger against the rivers? If we really understood what God was planning and preparing, we would leave judgment to him. 
We would, we would leave judgment to him. So it's a rhetorical question. And what we're looking at is, is this judgment. As, as God is engaging in salvation and judgment, we're looking to the past, anticipating the future, as at the Nile, the Red Sea, and the Jordan. Three examples. Um, the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in it died. The Red Sea was divided and then smashed down upon Pharaoh's army. The Jordan was divided as well. Cataclysmic events, all in service of God's judgment and salvation. Judgment of the wicked, salvation for his people. Um, if you turn, turn your Bibles to Revelation 16, um, this is also something awaiting the future final judgment. While you turn there, I'll read a quote. The consummate manifestation of the wrath of God shall occur at the end of time when God's angelic messengers shall pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the sea and the rivers once more. The springs of water shall be turned to blood. The river Euphrates shall be dried up. God's redemptive acts of the past provide the basis for an expectation concerning the future. So let's look at Revelation 16. Quickly, starting in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. That's identical to what happened in Egypt with the Nile, except now it's writ large. It's the sea, not a river. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is, who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, the Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. It's fitting, it's appropriate, it's not an overreaction. And when the audience sees God's judgments, they will applaud and approve. And and that's ultimately, as you strive through suffering, through mistreatment, what you must put your hope in, that you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied with God's justice. I was talking to someone this week dealing with a lot of anger and resentment at people who'd done great evil. And, and I said, in one sense, you're not angry nearly enough. The fury of the Lord God at the wicked, the unrepentant, is terrifying. It's terrifying. Leave it to him. He will make it right. Your, your petty, tiny, puny anger is a pea shooter. It's a spitball compared to what God has in store for those who resist him. That's, that's the rationale these is to give. We're not to get, as we read about this judgment, I would suggest two ways of understanding it. One, being confident, giving your anger, giving your resentments over to God. God will make it right. God will balance the scales. God will do justly and be seen to do justly. And also, if, if you are not reconciled to him, understand this God who is love, this God who abounds in kindness and steadfast love, will destroy you. 
he will not relent. This is what awaits all of the ungodly and unrepentant. So, moving forward. As at the Nile, the Red Sea, and the Jordan. And notice the war language. I've titled this, The Lord God Prepares for War or Goes to War. You rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, or of victory. Yeah, I think we translated. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. And one of the terms we call God is Lord of hosts. Remember, that means Lord of armies. And this army language here is precisely what's being employed. God with chariots and arrows. And again, we can, we can duck our head from these passages, but they're all over the Bible. God is a great, merciful Savior, and he is a holy and just king who will inflict justice on his enemies. And this is ultimately what is allowing Habakkuk the ability to say, I'll, I'll wait, I'll be patient, because I'm confident you will make it right. You will make it right. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 11.4, describing, showing you how this is the language of the past. What you did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how you made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. At the Exodus, Pharaoh had his chariots and his horses. In the manner of speaking, the Lord had his, and we know who won. The Egyptian army is at the bottom of the sea. God is preparing to do war. And this is in keeping with his covenant promises. Listen to Deuteronomy 32. This is God speaking. For I lift up my heaven, my hand to heaven and swear as I live. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And cleanses his people's land. And the the tension for us is to keep the two truths of God's grace and his mercy. His invitation to salvation. The meekness, the gentleness we see in the incarnation. That is true. That is wonderful. It is also true that he is a dread Lord and judge. And we dare not emphasize one and de-emphasize the other. Both are true. Both are critical for us. This isn't simply an Old Testament thing. People will sometimes try to get around this this type of language in the Old Testament and say, well, in the Old Testament, that's one thing. In in Revelation, after um, a wave of martyrdom has gone through and killed God's people, I think it's in Revelation 6, we get a glimpse of those who were martyred for their faith, the souls of those who died for their testimony. They're under the throne of God in heaven. These are people who are no longer sinful, And they cry out, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? The response given is not, why do you want that? The response given is, be patient. Be patient and watch. And then you keep reading Revelation and you see their blood is avenged. We need to hold on to both these realities, even as unpopular as it is, as unpopular as it may be.
He has unsheathed his bow for war. He has unsheathed his bow for war. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Notice that there's three different words for wrath here. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your indignation against the seas? Look down at verse 12. You marched the earth in your fury, threshed the nations in anger. It's, it's hard to miss that emphasis here. So first, we see God's purpose in his coming visited upon the waters with a series of rhetorical questions and recognizing that God is is warring in his chariot, with his bow, with his arrows. Next, it extends to the natural world. It extends to the natural world. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. The light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Just we got to we got to move quickly here for time, but I think what he's doing is combining Sinai, the flood, and even some of the 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 parting of the Red Sea. Um, Sinai is where the mountain shook. Mountain shook. Exodus nineteen eighteen. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because. The Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And this language of of waters and floods is reminiscent of the flood itself. Listen to Genesis 7, 19 to 20. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And in Psalm 104, let me find it. Here we go. Describing, I think, the flood. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. So, so this is what he's envisioning. God's cataclysmic judgment. Our modern unbelievers hard to please. They, they wonder, where was God? Why does God not deal with sin? Why does God allow evil to persevere? And yet, those people are not satisfied with the story of the flood. That further offends them. The flood is an indication God means business when he says he will judge sin. God, God has killed everyone on this planet at a given time except one family that he spared. And so again, this is imagery of... Take heart, take confidence. God will right what is wrong. God will give justice. And, and, the, and the rationale for us then is to let us be patient, to let us give it over to him that we don't cling to our anger and our wrath or that we don't become hopeless in despair. God will, as at the flood, he will deal with the ungodly. He will deal with sin. And next, we see the, the use of the, the sun standing and the moon standing still. And this is, of course, looking to Joshua's long day. Joshua's long day, you remember? Um, the Lord caused the sun and moon, both there to stand still. I'll read to you um, Joshua chapter 
10, 12 to 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. I mean, understand this. Why did the sun stand still? Joshua needs more time to meter out the Lord's justice on his enemies. So if the day's not big enough for Joshua and Israel as God's tool and instrument of judgment to pour out his wrath on the Amorites, well, then we've got to make the day longer. Because God has determined that justice will happen. This, is, this should cause us to be confident that he will make things right. We don't need to. He was willing to extend the day to make time for what needed to be done by Joshua and Israel. Is it Joshua's long day? And also at the crucifixion, where the sun was darkened, these, these lunar and solar signs tend to accompany great judgment. The sky turned dark. And likewise, in Revelation, in the, in the time to come, we know the sun will be darkened out, the moon will turn to blood, there'll be lunar signs again. These, these are the signs that accompany great judgment. And so Habakkuk is remembering, yes, God, even if right now it seems like he's letting it go on, even if right now it seems like the wicked are prospering, as he considers, he, he caused the sun to stand still in the sky to make more time for Joshua and Israel to pour out God's judgment on the Amorites. I can trust that God will make things right, even if it's taking longer than I'd like. He flooded the entire earth, saving one family. I don't need to worry that God isn't concerned about evil. I can take confidence and give it to him. I can take confidence and give it to him. So now that we've dealt with God's purpose on the waters and on the natural world, we come to his true purpose visited upon his enemies, 12 to 15. And, and you'll see a pattern, these verbs, you, you marched, you threshed, you went out, you crushed, you pierced, you trampled. And now the answer to the rhetorical question, Lord, was your wrath against the waters? No. The waters were a means to an end, which is the nations, which goes beyond even just Babylon. Even as Habakkuk is looking to Babylon primarily, we know that in the final judgment, it'll be all the nations of the world. So let's, let's walk through these. I just want to make six points from this with what time we have. First, this purpose, this judgment of God will be global will be global. You marched through the earth in fury. It's not limited to one little location. It's global. And that marching language is majestic. I, I think of uh, Proverbs 30, 29 to 31. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. God is on the march. He's going to war in his fury. In his fury. Also similar in language to describing the conquest of Canaan and the Exodus. Listen to Judges 5. You can get, pick up the, the similar language. Lord, when you went out from Seir, 
when you marched from the region of Edom, this is Judges 5, 4 to 5, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. When you marched. God has marched to defend his people, to judge nations, and he will do so again. And it's global in scope. Second, it is severe. It is severe. You threshed the nations in anger. Now, this picture of threshing, which is where you hit with a brush, grain to, to crack open the shell so that the chaff can be broken free from the good seed, is actually literally done in the book of Judges. Um, I think that's where the word picture may actually come from. In Judges um, 8.16, um, And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. They literally were thrashed, as though being um, threshed. And then that becomes an image and language used elsewhere in Scripture. Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. And I'll make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So when you speak of threshing, you're not just talking about defeating. You're not just talking about making them raise up a surrender flag. You're talking about a scourging, something that breaks down. It's it's going to be severe. It's going to be severe. Next, it'll be salvific. If all of this emphasis on judgment seems to only hit one note, understand that God's justice and his salvation are in concert. Again, we see that at the cross, God saves his people by pouring out his wrath on the Son on the cross. If you're a Christian here today, if you love God's grace, it's because God was righteous and full of wrath against your sin on the cross. It's not that God said your sins are no big deal. Again, we've got to get this in our head. The cross, the gospel, the message that we're forgiven is the message that God is both just and justifier. He takes sin very seriously, and he forgives. And the Son of God died on the cross, crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Precisely because God takes sin seriously. And so, yes, we need to rejoice at the grace and mercy of God, but we must also recognize the full concert of God's grace and salvation with his justice and judgment. So here in verse 13, we read, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He went out for the salvation of his people. So this judgment is not only accomplishing justice against evil, but it's also defending Israel from her tormentors and captors. Babylon, um, in, in about 70 or 80 years after Habakkuk's writing, and then finally, in Revelation, his people who are being persecuted. So God's judgment is his salvation for his people. They're in harmony. What is he doing going out in the nations in his anger? Is he judging? Yes. Is he saving? Yes. He's, he's doing both. Which is, again, the warning to us. We will either receive his salvation or his judgment. There's no third option. 
you're either going to receive this in the rest of the passage, or you're going to receive this part of verse 13, where the Lord is going out to save and deliver you. Now, I take issue with the ESV's translation here, and I prefer the King James, New King James, or the legacy. It's, they, they put parallel here. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, but your blank I've given you is for salvation with your anointed. And the King James, New King James, legacy, Young's literal, they all go that way. I think it's accurate. Um, He's accomplishing his salvation by his anointed, I believe is the idea. Um, And so then, of course, then raises the question, who is this anointed? And we got to start by reminding you that anointed is English for what is in Greek, Christ, Christos, and what is in Hebrew, Messiah or Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, and anointed are Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same thing. You could translate this for your Christ or for your Messiah. And so... The Lord is going out to save his people, and the agent accomplishing this saving is his anointed, is his Christ, is his Messiah. Now, to whom does that refer? And before we jump in with the Sunday school answer, Jesus, let's consider the options. Because of the parallelism here, um, some have suggested that the anointed is God's people. In, in that it, it has the advantage of, of, its, of keeping the parallelism. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation, and especially if you don't go with my change of, of to with, to, to the salvation of your anointed. And there is some precedent for this in Psalm 105, verse 15. Um, we can read about the Lord defending, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, plural. In one sense, God's people are his anointed ones, sure. It's not plural here, so I don't think that's what it means. Now, what is interesting is that Habakkuk um, is written after the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, speaking about the one that God would raise up to judge Babylon, we read this in Isaiah chapter, where's my blank here? There it is, Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I think in the first and near instance, this anointed one is Cyrus. Who is the Lord's anointed one who will carry out judgment and bring down Babylon? Isaiah tells us it's Cyrus. And so insofar as this vision is, is the near fulfillment, is the near reality of, of Babylon's going to go down. Babylon's going to be judged. It's talking to Cyrus. Now, so we can get back to the Sunday school answer. In the final conflagration, when, when Babylon returns, when the Lord returns to deliver his people, who is the agent, the one through whom that victory will come? Well, it's the word of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. But here, in the most immediate context, it's Cyrus, called the Lord's anointed. And again, he probably didn't know he was the Lord's anointed. As far as we can tell, Cyrus did what he did for his own reasons, as far as he was concerned, and not because he was a worshiper of the living God. But our God turns the hearts of the kings like water wherever he chooses. He raises up a nation. He casts down a nation. And so from God's point of view, he's the Lord's instrument, the Lord's anointed And so this judgment is in concert with God's deliverance of his people with his anointed. This is in keeping with the pattern we see in Scripture. Next, it is final. It is final. 
You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Crushed the house of the head of the wicked. Now this house of the wicked, I think, refers back to one of the woes. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from reach of harm. So who is this head of the house of the wicked? In the near instance, it's Belshazzar. Belshazzar's going down. He is the head of the house of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson. And ultimately, the head of the house of the wicked is the serpent of old in Revelation. The deceiver of the nations. And this notion of a wound to the head is a fatal wound. That's the, that's the idea. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, the proto-gospel, where the Lord says to, between the snake and the woman's seed, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, which is predicting he will deliver a life and death blow to you and you will hurt him. And so here... The Lord's anointed, his instrument of salvation, is going to crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It's final. There's there's no getting back up after this. It's not just a flesh wound. It's fatal. And you can think of the example in Judges of Yael, who drove the tent peg through Sisera's head. That was kind of final as well. He wasn't walking that one off. It was final. It was final. Then, there's a break here. Salah. And by the way, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It's difficult to translate in the Hebrew. But I think the idea is he's completely stripped. His armor is off. He is, he's received a mortal wound. And he is, he's stripped of his armor and his weapons. You pierced his own ar- with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. And, and partly to show our God's greatness. And partly in keeping with this notion of divine reversals that we've seen. Remember the pillager is pillaged. The, the, the spoiler is despoiled. Here, this judgment will be self-inflicted. Or in some sense, self-inflicted. There's a, there's a justice in their own weapons, their own tools, their own might being turned against them. Remember, this is a nation whose God is their strength. And their strength will be turned upon them. And this is completely in keeping with patterns in Scripture we see again and again and again. Think of Esther and Haman is hung on the gallows that he erected to kill Mordecai. Daniel in the lion's den. Who ends up in that lion's den? Daniel's foes end up in the lion's den. And in 1 Corinthians 2.8, we learn that the defeat of Satan and the rulers of this world that occurred at the cross, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They destroyed themselves in crucifying the Lord of glory. Colossians 2.15, for he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In what they thought was their victory, in what they thought was their moment of strength and might, they were defeated. And And this biblical pattern that we see of reversal, 
irony being turned, your own weapons being turned upon yourself is, is going to happen here. It's self-inflicted. And again, that shows the power and might of our God. He doesn't just defeat the foe, but he does it in such a way to show his might. It's not a close call. When the Lord Jesus returns in Revelation, I've said this before, as climactic and tense as the two sides lining up is, here's all the armies of the world. And here comes a rider on a white horse with an army behind him. If you were watching it as a movie, it would be anticlimactic by some canons of of theater. Because after everyone's lined up and there's a tense pause, what happens? The word of God opens his mouth, and with the sword of his mouth, his word defeats them. And in the very next verse, we don't even get a depiction of the battle. The very next verse, birds are invited to feast upon the dead bodies. It is such a non-issue. It's not a big power struggle. It's not a close match. It is utter and instant defeat. Because this is God dealing with his creation. Finally, as our text returns to where it started with waters, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. We we see again that it is cataclysmic. It's interesting that water gets referenced. As, as we, best as we can tell from outside the Bible, the way that Belshazzar was taken down, the way that Babylon was invaded, was the damming up of the river that ran through Babylon, enabling the, the invading force to go under the portcullis. They had, they had metal bars going down the river, but it didn't go all the way down to the river bottom. So if you dam the river up, you can go under. And while Belshazzar was having a drunken feast mocking the God of Israel, using the holy plates and cups and vessels. His doom came upon him, and he was destroyed. We know that in the book of Revelation, the Lord will turn the oceans and rivers to blood. God will make use of the water in his judgment. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. To turn, if you will, we will not have time for a closing song, but turn, if you will, to... 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. I've said already, and I'll say it again, this notion of finding comfort in God's justice coming is not simply an Old Testament theme. It's it's put out for Christians as well. God's, God's judgment is shocking. We, we too, like Habakkuk, can say, whoa, whoa, Lord, what do you have against the rivers and the oceans? Let me read to you how Paul comforts his struggling brethren. The Bible, again, assumes we will not be entirely comfortable in this world. We won't be at home in this world. The Bible assumes we're looking for and longing for another world to come where we are truly citizens, that we're Sensing a sense of anguish and angst at at, at the lack of justice being done here and now. And so the Apostle Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The fittingness of God's judgment, the turnaround. The afflictor becomes afflicted. Same patterns we've been seeing. And to grant relief to you 
who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So right now he's saying you're being afflicted. But, but hang in there. Hold on. Don't give up. He will come to deliver. It's the same exact motivation given to Habakkuk. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And Jesus, who is oh so meek and oh so mild in the incarnation, isn't showing up meek and mild at his second coming. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming again to inflict vengeance in flaming fire. It's completely consistent with what we're seeing in Habakkuk. They will suffer, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. The day of judgment is the day of salvation. Again, he's working them both in one and the same activity. To all have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So the way we put this together is we, we trust and we look to that coming judgment when the Lord will come to deliver us, when the Lord will come to repay his enemies. And we pray like Habakkuk, Lord, in the meantime, give us strength, give us life, give us understanding. And in your wrath, remember mercy. God has judged, he has saved, he will judge, and he will save. And let us be satisfied with that. Let us persevere, neither despairing nor taking wrath into our own hands, but trusting that the judge of the earth will do right. Let's pray. Lord God, these are heavy topics. We ought not to take lightly, but we ought to take them and receive them. You are a savior. You are full of steadfast mercy. You abound in it, but you also repay evil, visiting the sins of the parents upon the children. You are holy and you are just. You are merciful and you are righteous. And you have been able to give forgiveness and grace to us precisely because our substitute, our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, willingly bore your holy wrath on the cross. So, Lord, I pray that we would um, not be too comfortable in this world, that we would find hope and comfort in the knowledge that you are aware, you are seeing, you are active. You will make things right. You will balance the scales. You will deliver your people. And let us be content with that. Let us to wait patiently. And in the intervening time, Lord, give us strength and life. Lord, in the intervening time and the years in between, give us understanding that we might have a right perspective. Lord, continue to, in your wrath to remember mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.